Well, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 for our message today entitled, The Servant King, The Servant King. We've been looking at the first part of Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11 the last several weeks, which focuses on how the church at Philippi and all churches can preserve and pursue unity in the midst of conflict. Uh, We've seen in this study how Paul lays out the gospel motivations in verse 1, the God-oriented mindset of unity in verse 2, and the others-centered method of unity in verses 3 and 4. Last week, I had intended to do a basic introduction to the model of unity in verses 5 to 8, but as you know, we ran out of time. So that's what we're going to do today. In that sense, this is really part three of the title that we had given the previous messages, Living in the Church as a Christian. But verses 5 to 11 are not just the, the final point in what Paul is communicating in this section. It, it's really the glorious crescendo of what the Spirit is eager for us to know and embrace and believe for our lives. Uh, this section, verses 5 to 11, reveals essential truths about Jesus Christ our Lord that are both straightforward but also incomprehensible. Today we're looking at truths about eternal realities that are of immeasurable significance. And so while I fully intended to cover verses 5 to 11, we're only going to get through verse 8 today. I was telling Pastor Dave this week that uh, back in May when I was preparing to start into the book of Philippians, I divided it up into preaching sections, figuring, okay, I think I can get through the book in about 22 sermons or so. And uh, because of the good progress we've been making, we only have about 30 sermons left in the series. (laughs) So just be encouraged. We are moving forward. Well, every time I stand behind this pulpit to preach uh, the Word of God, I am keenly aware of my own inadequacy to explain God's Word in a way that reflects the glories that are in it. And I, I feel that perhaps more than ever today as we will look at the deity and humanity of Christ. So if I may, I'd like to take a moment just to pray and ask for the Spirit's help uh, for myself and for you as well. So let's pray. Lord, we've come to your word to sit under its teaching. And we believe that the word of God is living and active. It is the sword of the Spirit which he uses in our lives to conform us into the image of Christ. To both teach us what to believe and to cut off from us vestiges of the flesh and unbelief that remain. And so I pray that you would help me as the preacher to speak your word with clarity and truth, and that you would help all of us as listeners to receive your word as it truly is, not the word of man, but the word of God. And I pray even more than that, that your spirit would enliven our souls and help us to rejoice 
as we comprehend to whatever degree we can these glorious realities of our Lord Jesus Christ. If there was anyone here today who has not put their faith in Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you cause your truth to transform their heart today? It's for the glory of Christ that I pray. Amen. Well, if you're there, follow along as I read Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and then we'll focus on 5 to 8. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, there are many passages in the New Testament that help us come to a uh, a full understanding of Christology, which is the doctrine of Christ. Verses 5 to 11 here ranks among the most significant. It speaks clearly and directly to the deity and humanity of Christ. It speaks to his pre-existence, his incarnation, and his exaltation. It reveals not just his nature and his actions, but in part, his character, why he did what he did. It gives us a glimpse into the relationship between the Father and the Son. It gives us even a peek into the future. And how every human will one day relate with Jesus Christ. This passage is dense with truth. It is a goldmine of theology. But this text isn't here in an otherwise practical and personal letter to throw a bone to those ivory tower theologians. Here's something to chew on for a while. Now this text is here to present our God to us so that we can understand the one in whose image we have been made and whose character is set forth as our model to follow. Look at what he says there again in verse 5. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, because many of you have an ESV, I just need to highlight the footnote that you have in your Bible. The ESV says at the end of the verse, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Uh, but, and then there's a footnote. And the, the footnote says, or 
which was also in Christ Jesus. I want you to circle that footnote because that's really what it should be. That, that wording of which is yours in Christ Jesus is really a holdover from an older translation, the Revised Standard Version, uh, which somehow hasn't gotten updated. But the Greek is, is not complicated and the context is clear that it should be which was also in Christ Jesus. Every other translation has some version of that. So that's just the footnote there. Verse 5 transitions us from the motivations and the mindset and the method of verses 1 to 4 into the model of verses 6 to 8. So when Paul says, have this attitude, he's pointing back to what he's said, and he affirms that the very mindset that we are called to have as believers in the church is the very mindset that Jesus Christ himself had. So everything else, everything that we said last week in terms of not doing anything from selfish ambition, but rather thinking of others as more important than yourselves and looking out to their needs above your own, we find that very attitude in Christ Jesus. Now that's helpful for us because that that method that we're given in verses 3 and 4 is easy to say, but impossible to do in the flesh. We are naturally oriented to live our lives around ourselves. We instinctually live for our own desires or our own comforts or our own pleasure. We fundamentally trust ourselves and our thoughts and our perspective. We assume that what's best for me is what's best for everybody else. We claim our rights and our privileges and use them to our advantage, even fighting for them if necessary. And so in these and other ways, we we live for ourselves and for our benefit and our glory. Now, praise the Lord that those who are saved by Christ, who have been filled with his spirit and transformed by his love are not always that way. Uh, The sanctifying work of the spirit produces a change in us. He creates in us the capacity uh, to deny ourselves and to live for Christ and others. And then over time, he works in us the desire and, and, and the motivation and the ability to, uh, to follow Christ's example of selfless, selfless living and sacrificial love. So there are times where at great cost to ourselves and our advancement in life, we make decisions that benefit others and not ourselves. We go out of our way to to serve and care for others by meeting their needs in times of suffering. Uh, We give of our time to serve in ministry and be a blessing in the body of Christ. But even while we're growing in those ways, the remaining flesh in us still rears its head from time to time. We often allow our preferences and our desires of how things should be to create division in our relationships in the church. We can allow uh, our different opinions about what things should look like, how things should be done, uh, where money should be spent, how biblical principles should be applied, how leadership should be exercised, all of those kinds of things, both petty and significant Uh, Even while we're sacrificing and serving in the church, we can create divisions because of our opinions and we judge those who don't think the way that we think. Now add to that equation the dimension of, of rank or position and sometimes we measure 
different opinions based on who it is that holds them. We can think of ourselves or others as having greater weight based on their role or position or their relationship with someone in the church. It's not unusual that someone who gives generously to the church thinks they've purchased the right to get their way. (laughs) Sometimes a person has been at church for a long time and thinks that their tenure earns their voice to be heard. Sometimes being paid by the church makes us think that my opinion matters more than your opinion. Our thinking about how to navigate the differences among us can be so convoluted that we we need a model to clear away the confusion and bring us all into the right mindset. And that's what we have in this text. Paul presents us with, with the ultimate and the supreme example in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is presented here, as our title says, as our servant king, our servant king. So we'll walk through verses six through eight under the following headings. In verse six, we'll see that our servant king is God. In verse seven, we'll see that our servant king is, uh, became a man. And then in verse 8, our servant king humbled himself even to the point of death. And then next week, we'll see that our servant king is exalted in verses 9 to 11. So let's begin with our servant king is God in verse 6. Look again at verse 6. It says, who referring to Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, if you just read that without thinking too much, it almost sounds like Paul equivocates on the deity of Christ. The words, the form of God, don't sound very, he is God-like. But the opposite is true here. To make his point that Christ Jesus is our model of humility, it's essential that we understand the deity of Christ. And Paul emphasizes his deity three ways in this short verse. The first way he emphasizes the deity of Christ is by saying that Jesus existed. You see that word there at the beginning of verse 6? Who, although he existed... This word existed in verse 6 speaks to the pre-existence of Jesus. Before he was born into the world, Jesus existed. He did not, like every, everyone else in humanity, come into existence at the moment of conception. Rather, before taking on a human nature and a body, the Son of God existed as a person. This is just what the Apostle John said in John 1.1, that Uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that was not John's invention years after the life of Christ. Jesus himself declared his pre-existence while he was on the earth. He said in John 5, excuse me, um, 558, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born which was 2,000 years or so before Christ, before Abraham was born, I am. That is an unequivocal 
and undebatable statement that Jesus not only knew himself to have, been, to have existed before his birth, but he knew himself to be God. He used that same name that God used with Moses at the burning bush. We read in Exodus 3, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, you shall tell the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so Jesus says there in John 8, 58, I am. He is the eternal existing one. The second way Paul emphasizes the deity of Christ there in verse 6 is by the very use of the word form. That he is in the form of God. It's morphe in the Greek. We often use the word form in a way that conveys a similar appearance to something, but not the thing itself. The form is, is the shape of something. And so, for example, a toy can have the form of something without being the real thing, whether it's a toy car or a toy gun or a toy doll. The, the shape and the color is the same. Uh, there's, there's a form of it, but uh, it doesn't have the essential qualities of the real thing. And so a toy car doesn't run on gasoline and a toy gun doesn't shoot real bullets. And of course, a toy doll is not a living being. But this word form here doesn't merely refer to external appearance. And that's critical for us to understand because Paul also uses the same word in verse 7 to refer to the humanity of Christ. And so if we misunderstand form in verse 6, we will both deny the deity of Christ and deny the humanity of Christ. This word morphe refers to the essential qualities of something. The essential qualities of something. As one commentator put it, Morphe refers to that form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it. The expression does not refer simply to external appearances, but pictures the pre-existent Christ as clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor. Or another writer put it this way, it denotes form or shape, not in terms of external features by which something is recognized, but of those characteristics and qualities that are essential to it. Hence, it means that which truly characterizes a given reality. And so with that understanding, we can say that Jesus exists in the form of God means that he is truly God. He has the essential qualities of deity. But there's a third way that Paul emphasizes the deity of Christ, and that is by the phrase at the end of the verse where he says, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. As we'll see in a moment, that word grasped means to cling to something that you already possess and not use it for your own advantage. So equality with God is not something that Jesus was striving for and hoping for and reaching out for as if he didn't already have it. No, he had it. He just didn't use it for his own advantage. As well, we can say that the, the phrases, the form of God in the first part of verse 6 and equality with God in the second half of verse 6, grammatically, those phrases are parallel statements. So they both refer to the same Idea. And so this verse clearly and unquestionably affirms that Jesus existed as God before he was born into the world. 
Now, with those affirmations in hand, we can confirm that that is indeed what Paul means here because of what else Scripture says about the deity of Jesus Christ. And frankly, the evidence for the deity of Christ in the Bible is so overwhelming that uh, the only way to really deny it is to not read the Bible. But for the sake of time, I've just picked out a handful of statements to affirm for you if there's any doubt that this is what he means. In Colossians 2.9, Paul writes, In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Or Hebrews 1.3 says of Christ, He is the, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. Peter recalls that time when uh, he and James and John were on the mountain with Christ and, and the glory of Christ shone through the veil of his humanity. And Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance uh, as this was made, by, excuse me, made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It's the Father speaking of the Son. For the Father... To call the Son, or to call Jesus His Son, is to affirm that Jesus shares in the divine nature with the Father. In fact, it's this very principle that caused the Jews to want to kill Jesus. John 5.18 says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God His Father, making Himself equal with God. Those are just a few of the many passages that affirm the deity of Jesus. And so, friend, if, if you're here and you've questioned or doubted the deity of Christ, if you've thought that perhaps Jesus was just a good religious teacher, a, a moral man, you've not known the Jesus of the Bible. Whoever told you that Jesus was just a man sold you a lie that can be proved and corrected by the reading of the New Testament. So turn away from that diminished view of Jesus and embrace what Scripture tells us so clearly that Jesus is God. Now, coming back to our text, despite the emphasis that I've placed on it, that is actually not Paul's point here. Paul is not trying to convince the Philippian church that Jesus is God. They already believe that. Paul wants them to know what kind of God Jesus is. Namely, that unlike the pagan gods, he is not a God who uses his divine power and glory for his own selfish ends. That's what he means again when he says he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. This word grasped is what's called a hapax legomena. There's your big word for the day. Hapax legomena is a Greek word that's only used once in the New Testament, which can uh, make it difficult to understand its specific meaning uh, as it's used in the New Testament. That's why there's different translations of the, the last half of this verse. We have the word grasped here in the New American Standard and the ESV. Uh, the NIV, if you have that, says uh, that he did not consider it something to be used to his own advantage. Or the King James and New King James say he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. 
Over the years, as linguistic research has advanced, it's been noted that when used outside of Scripture, the way it's used here, it refers not to the the literal action of grasping something, but rather it's an idiom. Uh, It's a manner of speaking referring to taking advantage of something that you already have. As one author wrote, the question is not, whether one possesses something, but whether or not one chooses to exploit something. Paul's point then is that Jesus did not, his, he, he did not consider his existence as God something to be exploited for his own benefit. Now remember the context. The, the context of this passage is a church in conflict where differences of opinion and preferences uh, are dividing the church. If there is anyone who knows what is best for everyone, if there is anyone who can claim ownership and authority to get their own way, if there's anyone who's independent of everyone and everything, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King of glory who exists in eternity. He has no beginning and no end. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And according to Hebrews 1.3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. He has aseity, which means that he, has, he is self-existent. He is not dependent on anything or anyone outside of himself to exist. In fact, he gives life to all living beings. He is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. He is almighty, King of kings and Lord of lords. He has all power and all authority and all dominion. To him alone belongs all of the glory and all of the majesty. In the words of Abraham Kuyper, there is not one inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Perhaps you've heard the saying, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. If that were true when applied to Jesus, can you imagine what he would be like? Anytime someone said a, used his name as a cuss word, you're done. Anytime someone talked back to him or complains. Your life is over. Anytime something wasn't done the way he revealed it should be, he could just say a word and everything would transform and change to be the way that he wanted it. If absolute power corrupted absolutely, Jesus would respond to any violation of his desires and preferences with cruel retribution and force everyone to do things against their will. As it relates to human leaders, history has certainly shown that any person entrusted with unaccountable and unrestrained power and authority will be corrupted. But only God has absolute power, and His nature cannot be corrupted. To the contrary, this God, our Lord Jesus Christ, did not consider all that He is and all that he has as something to be used for his own benefit. 
So what does he do with all of his rights and privileges? How does he use his power? Did he reject it for the purpose of becoming a slave? Did the king just lay aside his glory and become a pauper, living as though he had no power and authority? Not exactly. Consider these words by uh, one commentator. The pre-existent son regarded equality with God not as excusing him from the task of redemptive suffering and death, but actually as uniquely qualifying him for that vocation, unquote. We could say it this way. Arrayed with majestic glory, the Son of God looked upon the, the plight of, cur- of a cursed world filled with sinful people who deserved nothing but the wrath of God and had no way of escape. And in submission to the Father's will, he did not cast aside his deity, but he harnessed his deity to employ it for the redemption of sinners. To do that, he had to become a man. And that's our second heading. Our servant king, who is God, became a man. Look at verse 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. A lot of trees gave their lives for the paper required to print the books and articles written on this verse. One pastor and professor wrote, Philippians 2, 6-11 has attracted more scholarly attention than any passage in the Pauline corpus, all of what Paul has written. There is difficulty here to be sure, and this passage raises more questions than it answers, but when we employ Scripture to interpret Scripture, we can stand firm in the truth and rejoice in the truth. So let's address the issue head on. What does it mean that he emptied himself? Does it mean that Jesus, who is God, pre-existed before he came into this world, does it mean that he stopped being God? No, that can't be. God cannot stop being God any more than a man can become God. Uh, To be God, among other things, means to be immutable, which means that he cannot change in his essential nature. And so if he could become not God, then that means he was never God to begin with. And even if we could, for the sake of argument, if Jesus wasn't God on the earth, then his death could not atone for the sins of his people. And so he would be a pointless Messiah. Plus, we've seen from Scripture already, that Jesus himself affirmed his deity even while on earth. So this can't mean that Jesus stopped being God. Perhaps it means that Jesus turned off the God part of himself. Like we would turn off a circuit in a house so that electricity doesn't flow to to certain wall outlets. Perhaps Jesus, even while being God, kind of turned off his divinity so that his divine power didn't flow through him while he was on the earth. After all, doesn't the scripture say that Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit? Indeed, Luke 4.14 says that after his temptations in the wilderness, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. 
Isaiah 11, after all, says of the Messiah, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So maybe Jesus, while being God, just didn't have his divine nature turned on, then he only lived out of the power of the spirit. Well, there's some truth to this. The scripture I just read and others affirm that Jesus was indeed empowered by the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you think about the unforgivable sin, which is the blasphemy of the Spirit, one can only commit the unforgivable sin by looking at the miracles of Christ and coming to the conclusion that it was done under the power of Satan rather than the power of the Holy Spirit. You can read about that in Matthew 12. But be careful, just because the Bible affirms ways in which Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit, it does not mean that his deity was turned off, as it were. One respected theologian points out that the text doesn't say that Jesus emptied his deity. It says he emptied himself. And so his view is that Jesus gave himself in the redemption of sinners. And so according to that interpretation, to empty himself means essentially what Jesus meant when he said, I lay my life down for the sheep in John 10. Now that seems reasonable on the surface, and of course there's truth in that as well, but that doesn't really fit the context here. And there are other views as well, but you hopefully get a sense that there are complexities in this verse. And frankly, within the the circle of Orthodox theologians, there are different ways to understand this word emptied while still standing firm on the deity and humanity of Christ. But, But let me put some puzzle pieces together and hopefully we can arrive at a clear understanding. First, when when used of physical substances, the word empty, like water in a cup, the word emptied means exactly what you would think it means. It means to pour out the substance until there's nothing left. But when used in reference to something that's not a substance, like the deity of Christ, it means to make something ineffective. Ineffective. In fact, it's used that way in Romans chapter 4, verse 14, with regard to faith. Paul says there that if you try to earn your salvation through good works or through the keeping of the law, your faith is empty. It's made void. It's ineffective. It does nothing. So in what way did Jesus make his deity ineffective? Well, rather than making a blanket statement that the deity of Christ was cut off completely and and ineffective in whole, the better approach is to let Scripture tell us in what ways Jesus emptied himself. And we have that right here in this passage. Look again at verse 7. It says, He emptied himself, taking the form of of a bondservant or a slave. Grammatically here, taking the form of a slave is how Jesus emptied himself. Again, Jesus is Lord, but he set aside the right of kingship 
temporarily and became a slave. In the words of Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus was growing up in his home, uh, he, he submitted to his parents and he did not demand that his parents and his siblings bow down and serve him. In the three years of his ministry, as he traveled around Israel, he never demanded that the people around him serve him and, and give him things and, and treat him as a king. Rather, he served others to the point of exhaustion. We see this most clearly on the night before he died when the disciples and Jesus were all together in the room and nobody wanted to take up the task of washing the feet of the group. And so Jesus himself, knowing he was about to die and all of what he was about to go through, he got up and washed the disciples' feet. As God, Jesus deserves and had the right to be served. But he made that right of no effect and instead, he lived in service to others. And then if you look again at verse 7, at the end of it, it says, being made in the likeness of men. The word for likeness here is not the same word that we see in Scripture referring to the likeness or the image of God in man. Uh, the emphasis of this word is the external similarities. And so if someone were to tell us about some difficulty, some suffering they went through, and we were to say, oh yeah, I've been through something like that. That's the idea. We're, we're saying we've been through some, an experience that bears some similarity, even though the details of that situation would be radically different. Now, by saying the likeness of men and referring to the externals, that doesn't call into question the humanity of Christ. It affirms that his human experience was similar to what men experience. It's because Jesus was made in the likeness of men that Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. What does it mean that he was made in the likeness of men? Think about this with me. One of the realities of God is that he is transcendent. This means that he exists above and outside of creation. As God, he is not affected by the influences of the world like we are. He is not touched by the curse of sin like we are. His, he, he transcends creation and human experience. As well, we can say, we, we know from Scripture, that he is holy, which means that he is separate from us. He is utterly unlike us. He's not just different from us in degree. He's categorically different from us. The Lord says in Isaiah 46 verse 9, remember the former things long past. For I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. He is an eternal being with no beginning and no end. We are everlasting beings. We had a beginning and we will live forever by the sustaining power of God. He is infinite and we are finite. 
He is spirit, unbound by space and time. We are spirit and body, bound to space and time. He is creator and we are creature. All of those realities are summed up by the statement, He is holy. But Jesus stepped into time and space by taking on a human nature and body. Jesus condescended and lived as a man with real limitations. He felt the experiences of men. He felt the pressures and influences of the world around him. He didn't hover over the ground. The animal dung that was caked on the streets and got on everybody's shoes and legs and clothing got on the shoes and legs and clothing of Christ. He got hungry. He got tired. He got angry. He got sad. He laughed and he cried. His experience of life as a human was as true as yours and mine, except that he never sinned. Now, Jesus did not lose his transcendence and his holiness, but it was veiled by his humanity. One illustration sometimes used is that of a a car, which is after it's been washed and waxed, it's shiny and bright. But once it gets caked with mud, the, the brightness, the shininess technically is still there. It's just covered over. Yet another way in which Jesus emptied himself is by making his glory of no effect. You know, when when we read in the Old Testament especially, even in the New Testament as well, whenever people caught a a glimpse of the glory of God, such as when the glory filled the temple or the tabernacle, it always caused them to fall flat on their faces in terror. That's why when Moses asked God, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. God says, you can't see me. No one can see me and live. When Isaiah saw the Lord on his throne in Isaiah chapter 6, Noah said, or Isaiah said, I almost disintegrated. Even when the apostle John, of course, a close friend of Jesus, when he saw the vision of Christ in Revelation chapter 1, he fell at the feet of Christ like a dead man. So if Jesus had come to earth in the fullness of his glory, no one would have been able to stand before him. But in being born as a man, Jesus veiled his glory. And it's not just the Shekinah glory as significant as that is, and perhaps most significant that was veiled. Jesus didn't even come with physical features that we would think epitomize manhood. Tall, handsome, muscular, silky hair, whatever else you might throw in there. Isaiah 53 says of him, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So as Jesus traveled around Israel, the people were not attracted by his appearance. Perhaps the Pharisees wondered in their heart, why do people keep following Jesus? He's not even good looking. Whatever the case, Jesus set aside or or veiled his brilliance, the brilliance of his glory, and became a man whom no one would have guessed he was the Messiah just by looking at him. 
In these and other ways, Jesus emptied himself. He made his deity of no effect such that his life experience was truly human, again, except that he never sinned. There were ways where there were there were ways in which he exercised his divine power, such as knowing the thoughts of the Pharisees or or knowing the thoughts of the people that they were wanting uh, him to just uh, work for their benefit, perform miracles for for their good. There was a time when the people uh, when people in a synagogue got so angry at Jesus that they, they pulled him out. They virtually dragged him to a cliff, and they were about to throw him off the cliff. And the scripture says. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Now, it doesn't say this, but I just wonder, like, did he become invisible and just go through the crowd? I don't know. It doesn't say. Jesus, as we know, walked on water. He commanded the storm to cease. When a woman touched him, she was healed. And Jesus said, I was aware that power had gone out of me. Jesus kept a wedding going by turning water into wine, and he stopped a funeral by raising the dead man. So Jesus did not set aside his power, but he harnessed his power to accomplish the Father's will. In John 5, 19, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of, his, of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. In John 6, 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so in emptying himself, Jesus set aside certain privileges and prerogatives and glory. He did not stop being God, but by taking on human flesh and a human nature, he limited the exercise of his divine rights and abilities for the purpose of accomplishing the Father's will. And that leads us to our third heading, our servant king, humbled himself to death. Our servant king humbled himself to death. Look at verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, This word appearance here speaks again to the fact that he didn't come down from heaven uh, in his heavenly glory, but rather he was born into this world as a man. He was truly human. But again, he, he did not come as a king to be served. He came with humility. Unlike Haman in the book of Esther, Jesus did not demand that everybody bow down as he walked by. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, Jesus did not demand that they build a statue and everybody worship that statue. Unlike King Herod, Jesus didn't put fear and trepidation in the hearts of his followers so that they did what he wanted. No, his demeanor was one of a servant and he lived to care for the needs of others. He didn't view his life as something to be preserved at all costs. Rather, he viewed his life as something to be given for the forgiveness of sin. Had Jesus clung to his deity as something to be used for his own advantage, he would never have accepted the Father's plan that he die. But he made his divine privilege of no effect by willingly submitting himself to the plan of redemption, requiring that he suffer and die. Though he is of infinite worth, he humbled himself by setting aside his 
riches. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that uh, you through His poverty might become rich. Now that doesn't refer to financial wealth. Jesus is the possessor of heaven and earth. He owns everything. His richness refers to His divine glory and privilege, which He set aside so that He might so that we might be saved and united to Him and thus receive all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, which we read about in Ephesians 1.3. Now, for whom did Christ die? Did He die for the rich and famous? Did He die for the influential and the powerful? Did He die for the successful and the highly educated? Did He die for the righteous and the religious? Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still helpless, at the, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Along the same lines, 1 Peter 3, 18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just Christ for the unjust us, so that he might bring us to God. Paul says here at the end of verse 8, that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is to highlight the extent of the humility of Christ, that he submitted himself not just to die, but to die in a torturous and humiliating way. A way that rendered a person cursed of God. Scripture says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus didn't try to negotiate with the Father and say, well, Father, I'm willing to die, but can we make it a hanging? Can, we, can, can I get drowned? Can I get my head chopped off? Something that would be quick and painless. No, he agreed to die a torturous and a public death. And he hung on the cross for hours as a public spectacle. Acts 4, 27, 28 tell us that everything that happened to Jesus was the, the outworking of the Father's plan. It says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. This is a prayer from the people to God. Whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, tells us the disposition of Jesus with regard to his sacrifice. It says, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Most of that is quotes from the Old Testament put on the lips of the Messiah. And as a result of the sacrifice of Christ of himself, it says, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So Jesus, as the servant king, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Friend, if you came here today and you have been unclear about who Jesus Christ is. I trust that by now you see that Jesus is truly God and truly man. And I say is, not was, because when he rose from the dead three days after being dead and buried, he did not leave his humanity behind. 
His body is glorified, but it is still a body, and ours will become like His if we have believed in Him one day. And this is perhaps the most mind-blowing reality is that Jesus didn't just humble himself by taking on a human nature and human body for 33 years of his earthly life. No, he is now and forever truly God and truly man. The decision to become a man and live and suffer and die after which he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven are not actions Jesus took because he had to. This is important. The second member of the Trinity did not draw the short straw when they were trying to figure out who's going to become a man. No, he did this, listen, he did this because that is his character. The incarnation is the manifestation of Christ's character of not doing anything from selfish ambition. But considering others as more important than himself. Looking not to himself, but to the needs of others. So when you read verses 3 and 4 about how we are to relate with one another. Don't think that you have to do these things just because Jesus did them. Recognize that Jesus acted out of his self-giving nature. And as those who have been made in the image of God and who are being conformed to the image of Christ, this is how we reflect his character in our lives. We, we worship and we serve a God who isn't self-seeking and who doesn't exist for his own benefit. Rather, we worship a God and we serve a God who is generous, who is a giver of all good things and gives out of his abundance. And we worship a God who, who uses his high and holy position to come to the aid of fallen man. How much more should we, when we are in conflict, humble ourselves Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather consider others as more important than ourselves, looking not to our interests, but to the interests of others. How much more should we die to ourselves and be a blessing and a benefit to others? Well, beloved, in the last three messages, we've seen the motivation, the mindset, the method, and the model now of unity. I know it's hard to hold on to these truths all at the same time, but the key is to remember that everything we need to preserve and pursue unity in the local body of Christ is found in the gospel. Jesus Christ accomplished peace with sinners through his sacrificial death and resurrection. And now he who ascended into heaven calls all people to believe in him and become like him. So if you, if you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in him who gave his life for sinners to pay the penalty that we all deserve and who rose again and sits in glory today. And Christian, if you are in conflict with others and you don't know what to do, look to Christ. Consider what it might look like to exemplify his character in your situation Consider inviting someone else into your life to speak into you and help you think through how you can manifest the character of Christ.
and so preserve the unity in the church. Now next week, we're going to come back and we're going to see how the Father responded to the sacrifice and humility of Christ and what that means for us and all people. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, as as we have just spent a few minutes considering who you are and what you've done. There is so much that we could say and perhaps needs to be said as we continue to meditate on your word. But I pray that what we've said has helped each one of us to see you in all of your glory, to come to a greater understanding of the extent to which you went to reconcile us to yourselves. And if you would go that infinite distance, how much more should we go an infinitely smaller distance to love our brothers and our sisters in Christ and preserve unity? Help us to imitate you, to to love you, to show the world what you are like. In Christ's name, amen.